This week in Retronauts, we hit bricks to commit murder. everyone. Welcome to this episode of Retronauts, the latest episode, the unnumbered episode at this point because we don't know when it's going to go live. I'm Jeremy Parrish, hosting this week, and in this crowded and stuffy studio, we have, as always... Hey, it's me, Bob Mackey. And joining us from IGN... Jose Otero. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. And making his triumphant return to Retronauts for the first time in far too long... Chris Kohler! Hooray! From Wired. From Wired. Um, so yeah, we've all gathered together here to discuss the 30th anniversary of one of the most important and greatest games of all time, Super Mario Brothers, which, uh, I think is kind of fresh on, on everyone's minds, not just our own, but, but, you know, any Nintendo fans because of the recent release of Super Mario Maker, which is simultaneously a sort of anniversary tribute and also like a new and interesting take on the Mario concept, a sort of democratization of, of this classic game uh, that really kind of ties together 30 years of, of history and, you know, recontextualizes it. It's re- really great. Are you doing Aquafina shots? <laughs> uh, no. During the next episode we record, mm-hmm. I'm going to do some watercoloring because I have nothing to contribute. So I'm going to work on some Retronauts podcast covers. Oh, okay. So we have a shot glass here with um, some cheesecake pinup shots from Las Vegas. You got to you got to chase that with some Fiji water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's my recommendation. That's how you do it. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. So yes, sorry you can't be in the studio, everyone, to look at this tiny um, Las Vegas shot, glass. tiny booby shot glass. Yeah, it's really classy and awesome. <laughs> anyway, that has nothing to Is do it the whatsoever. Kind where you tip it over and the cl- her clothes come off. No, oh, is okay. there such a thing? I. I wouldn't know. I don't think shot glass technology has advanced that far yet. <laughs> Maybe drinking glass. Anyway, we're, we've already gone terribly off track. It's terrible. <laughs> um, yes, so Super Mario Brothers. Uh, Super Mario Brothers debuted in Japan on September 13th, 1985. I have a quick question. Uh, Jose, when did you debut, if, well, you, if you get my drift? Uh, are you, are you older or younger than Super Mario? Oh, I'm older than Super Mario. Okay. In fact, I, uh, I lived in New York and got one of the first uh, NESs. <gasps> like, my mom like, basically camped out at uh, wow. F.A.O. Schwartz. And oh, yeah. oh, my goodness. Yeah. He's, yep. He has more right to talk about Mario than any of us. Apparently. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. You always think, struck me as being younger than I think you are. Yeah. No, yeah. He's, he just – it's clean living. Jose takes right. good care of himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think all of us in here are older than I Mario. Am. I yes. am. Yes. Yeah. I'm much older than Mario. So, or Super Mario Brothers, anyway. Yep. Actually, I'm older than Mario. So there we go. Hmm. Um, so yes, Super Mario Brothers debuted September 13th, 1985 in Japan. Came out in America about a month, a month and a half later in limited supply. As Jose what? mentioned, actually, this is a good question. Was this 1985 that you got the, one of those first NES? So it's hard to towards? remember, but it was Christmas. So whatever she pulled off, it still was the. T- it was in that tense launch period. Do you and remember I getting unwrapped it? Super Mario Brothers. That's the hard question. I don't remember it that well. So I followed up with uh, video game historian and, and off-time Retronauts contributor Frank Cifaldi uh, yes. to, before the show just to find out, Frank, what is the latest information oh, on right. Super Mario Brothers' U.S. release date? And uh, what Frank had to say was at this time, 
it, we feel that it probably almost surely was released in the U.S. within 1985, but there is no smoking gun evidence yet. Yeah. There well, is oh. nothing we can point to and say, oh, this definitely proves yeah. that it happened. They didn't have to do any localization to the game, right? It was just the manual that needed tra- uh, right. like, translation, nope. essentially. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought but, we at least had the month. I thought we at least had October. Wow. Okay. No. Well, we have Oct- – like Nintendo says – like they, they put that date on there, October 1985, but – it might that might not be the case. Mm. Yeah, you know? Nintendo's not afraid to play fast and loose with official dates. If you look at official Nintendo release dates, they have you know a list of every game that was released for NES under license, except the Tengen games that were released under license, which were expunged from their list yep. when Tengen went rogue. Yep. So because those games were you know uh, what was it Pac Man, uh, Tetris? No, not Tetris. Gauntlet and. Uh, I want to say Indiana Jones yeah. and the Triple of Doom. Like those are released as licensed versions, but not, then... in, not Indiana Jones. Uh, oh. Tengen Gauntlet and RBI Baseball. RBI Baseball. That's or it. Tengen. Yeah. I'm ridiculous. Yeah. Gauntlet. T- sorry. Gauntlet. Gauntlet. Pac-Man and RBI yes. Baseball. And my brother had the licensed version of RBI Baseball, yeah, actually. Yes. Uh, but those do not show up on Nintendo's release list because right. they were like, you assholes, you went rogue, <laughs> and you no longer exist. They You're, even got rid of Cyberball. Games... Cyberball, which was made by Tengen and published by Jalico, mm. they crossed that off the list. I didn't even know that one. That's they crazy. Did? very yeah. Stalin-esque so, of them. So yeah. what I'm saying <laughs> is Nintendo un- un- is usually reliable, but they are not afraid to fudge details a little bit to make themselves look better or to make someone else look bad. Yep. Mm. So anyway, so if it Big Brother, Big Brother, you can stores, tra- trust them so far. Yeah, if it didn't get out in the U.S. stores in 1985, it was certainly very, very early in 1986 when we have, you know, real solid documentation of this game being available for purchase. Yep. In any case, yeah, anyway. let's say it released shortly thereafter mm. in America, uh, but in limited quantities because when the NES launched, it was only in a test market in San Francisco and New York City, only available from FAO Schwartz. Am I correct? Or was there another retailer that – Yes. Well, I think it was – I mean originally it was only New York City and then the next step was FAO Schwartz's around the country started uh, okay. carrying them. Yeah. Mm. There you go. But I have a whole mess of um, those original uh, Circle Seal black box games that I mm-hmm. got here in a Salvation Army since closed in San Francisco um, that have FAO Schwartz price tags on them. Whoa, that's yeah, cool. That's a fine. Yeah, so they're uh, early. You should you should explain what a Circle Seal NES box yeah, is. Yeah, so um, instead of shrink wrapping the boxes, you know how NES boxes, the first run of them had like hang tags that would like pop out. Like you'd hang them up on pegs like action figures. Yeah, yeah they you'd did that through like 1987 the or so. They did, um, but these ones, they didn't shrink wrap them. They just took a little uh, circular seal like a like you'd have at a video uh, rental store that if you peel it off, it says void. And they, they stuck that onto the box and it had a little Nintendo logo on it. And they stuck it over the top flap of the box. And that was how the wow. box was actually sealed okay. for the first run. So no shrink wrap around that. No shrink wrap wow. at all. Okay. Um, and so they, they very quickly – and the thing is it's like these games would be like behind the counter in an FAO Schwartz. They didn't really need to be shrink wrapped, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, mm-hmm. they, they started shrink wrapping them pretty, pretty fast. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> Maybe they just didn't have a shrink wrap machine. Like, oh, that's added hey, cost. Just, I'm yeah. sorry, just out of and curiosity, pay, how much did rent. an NES cartridge cost during that Oh, one? I think Remind the FAO Schwartz uh, tags that I have have them at about $30. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. okay just, that's what I remember NES games launching at for, you know, being available at in like 1987, 88. Uh, it wasn't until the first one I saw that was more than $30 was Double Dragon, mm-hmm. which oh, launched yeah. at 40 That's like what, the, what I remember seeing the price as. And 
that made me want it even more. I was like, I have to save up for this because it's, uh, $10 it's better. important. <laughs> this game is big. It's going to be awesome because it costs $10 more. Also, the box is red. How cool is that? Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Little did you know this was simply, you know, the fact that Nintendo charged third parties out the butt. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 But, but that was, as, as far as I can remember, the first time I ever saw an NES game for more than $30 or maybe $34.99 at some of the more – uh, rapacious retailers like Kmart um, yep. who would, you know, kind of add a little surcharge on there. Yep. So um, It would explain why we had so many at my house now because, I mean, we were a pretty poor family, but my mom was pretty generous with the NES cartridges. And if it was 30 bucks a pop, I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense now. Mm-hmm. Uh, even yep. $30 of, what, 1985, 86? Yeah, be. because, I mean, this is a whole different discussion, but yeah, even though there's that. been inflation, like buying power has not increased with inflation. So yeah. $30 in 1985 was actually not that precious compared to $30 now. Yep. Uh, anyway, so back to Super Mario Brothers. Uh, the best way to describe Super Mario Brothers is that uh, it was – or to explain it, its existence, is that it was created as the ultimate cartridge game yeah. by Nintendo. Mm-hmm. The the thinking there for creators uh, – key creators, Super Shigeru Miyamoto, Takashi Tezuka, Koji Kondo, Toshihiko Nakago, and Hiroshi Ikeda. Um, we can talk about them more later. But the, the thinking there was that the Famicom disk system was on its way just a few months later, like five, six months later in Japan, February 1986. Oh, um, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, no, I mean this is something they actually yeah. said. Like yeah. when, when they launched the Famicom disk system, it launched with The Legend of Zelda, which was the ultimate disk system game. It was mm-hmm. a big grand adventure with persistence and you had you know items that you could collect and money and an economy and save files yep. and so on and so forth. Like, and they was, were kind of preparing to like leave this restrictive world of cartridges behind and move on to the you know vast expanse exactly. of memory on the disk system. Right, yeah. because the at the time the disk system did offer quite a bit more storage capacity than cartridges did. Um, Nintendo Super Mario Brothers was published on an NROM cartridge. It was an NROM, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which was kind of like your your basic level cart. And uh, it didn't have any of the special memory mappers or expansions of the later cartridges that would be invented for the NES. So this was basically Nintendo's designers saying, what can we do within the limits of this space as like a grand farewell to the classic cartridge format before we switch over to the disk system? And they put together a massive game, just absolutely huge. If you compare Super Mario Brothers to the games of its time, uh, if you look at what was being released for Famicom in 1985 – Nothing compared to this. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. it was miles beyond. It was thirty two levels packed with secrets, all kinds of different enemies, four a, a boss battle every four stages, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hidden worlds, mm-hmm. uh, a second loop through the game. It was it was and like it was conceptualized as a home game, you yeah. know, versus you know being an arcade game first and then being ported to the home. Right. Game. Yeah, and that's a big distinction for the, especially for the NES, right? Because you when you first got an NES, you had like your gyromites, your duck hunts, your Hogan's Alley. Uh, games that were essentially very reminiscent of what people would play in arcades, like I shorter format. believe that every action game Nintendo had developed and published until this point had been a single screen game. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. This was the first Nintendo game, I, I'm pretty, well, no, Balloon Fight had scrolling in Balloon Trip. Balloon Trip, yeah. But that was actually right. released pretty contemporarily. I think that was like May 1985 hmm. with Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. So it was it was like this new thing that they had, like the ability to make the screen scroll. The scroll is huge. Yeah, what's yeah. It? Yeah, gyro might scroll back and forth a little bit too, but that was also very. Yeah, but it limited. was still contained to roughly yeah. what could be considered a wider. But screen. this game it was is starting sprawl. from like okay, 
we can make the screen scroll. How do we design a game that is, you know, built around that? Yeah. Right. I mean, wasn't the breakthrough so big that, like, uh, I remember a chapter from a book. Uh, this may have been Masters of Doom, but something regarding, like, John Carmack and, mm-hmm. like, kind of building something like that to work on PC and that that was a sort of a highlight, like, it a was moment. It was big that they were able to do it on PC. Yeah. Yeah, on yeah, that platform. Just, exactly. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. no one thought it could. But by, by default, the NES hardware was not meant to have scrolling screens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, that was the same for every system. System built around that time, uh, the the NES was contemporary. It came a year after the ColecoVision. Had a very similar architecture. If you read the book I Am Error, which we're going to reference, I'm sure throughout this oh, podcast, yeah. <laughs> uh, Nintendo actually based the spec of the NES around the ColecoVision. So they were very similar pieces of hardware. The MSX launched the same day as, uh, or roughly the same day as the uh, the NES. Sega's SG1000 launched the same day as the the Famicom. Uh, and like all of these kind of had the same limitations. So Nintendo was kind of pushing beyond the boundaries right here of, of what their system could do by default. And it, it involved a lot of really clever program trickery, mm. uh, programming trickery. But Super Mario Brothers was not just about programming trickery. It was about like this grand adventure, this really great game that controlled beautifully and had all kinds of secrets and just stuff to do. Mm. Um, I don't know. Someone want to jump in here? <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think the weirdness was not just like, uh, oh, well, you know, wacky Japan. It was like sincerely whimsical in a way that I don't think games were at that point at home. I mean, there were some examples, but a lot of games at the time were known for being, oh, you're a spaceship or you're Pac-Man, I guess. But right. there was like characters and there was like a villain and there were mm-hmm. like the power-ups were strange in, in ways no one had seen before. Like you touch a mushroom. It's it's also natural to us now, but it was a, like a bizarre Yeah, game. I mean Namco had uh, had dabbled in this the year before, 1984 with Pac-Land, which mm-hmm. had a lot of the same features. It had, you know, a character that you were controlling and enemies and there was a boss and there was scrolling and there were platforms. But – I mean, that game was so clumsy. It's not fun to play. It's really – it's an admirable attempt to create – you know, like to push games in this new boundary, in this new direction. But it just wasn't done that well. And you can forgive it for its vintage. But Super Mario Brothers came along a year later and just completely destroyed it. This was – I mean, you know, I I, – uh, it, it, it tends to be these days people want to shy away from like giving Miyamoto too much credit, you know, what I mean? too much credit, right? Because like when, when people first started asking, like, oh, why are these Mario games so good? You know, the answer they got was, oh, well, we employ this guy Shigeru Miyamoto, and he is the world's greatest video game designer, and he is magical. Um, and so people, <laughs> you know, that that you know caught hold in a way that maybe it, it shouldn't have caught hold so much because the the real answer was that Nintendo was refining the process. Uh, but a lot of that process kind of came from Miyamoto's insights into gameplay. That's so right. one hand washes the other. But by the time they get to Super Mario Brothers, they were really starting to build out that iterative design process um, that we would understand. You know, people would think at the time was, oh, that Nintendo magic, that untouchable je ne sais quoi of why are Nintendo games so good. It was really all about how they were building these games. Yeah. Um, because Super Mario Brothers, they they would start talking about like, you know, how they would just test and test and test like jump heights for Mario and jump distances and what feels the best and, you know, yeah. how does everything play off of each other. And it wasn't just like the excellence of the platforming or the adventure, but the secrets. Like that became the thing that I feel like our generation or at least the, the kids yeah. I grew up around like latched mm-hmm. onto. It was, hey, if you jump in this spot, you get a one-up or, hey, a warp zone. Like I don't think I had played a game where that was a thing. And I'm sure someone did it before, but the fact that this was sort of a big
big uh, mass market hit and it was something that everyone was talking about and those secrets became a thing that were constantly referenced. It just continued to drive, you know, my anticipation to want to go back to that game. And I think yes. a lot of people that was Super true. Mario pulled together a lot of things that other games had been doing but never in a way like this where everything fit together so well and just yeah. felt so – Effortless. To, to back to your point they about did, they did every. El- it was one of the first games in which like each and every element was like firing on all cylinders. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, back to your point, Chris, about the uh, the play mechanics being mm. so carefully tested. We uh, just recorded a Mario sixty four podcast that probably won't be up by the time this is, but that was that was a big topic of discussion. Was the fact that you know Nintendo Miyamoto especially really likes to take the time to. Make sure that a game is fun to play at its core element, which is like the little dude you're controlling. What does he do? What yeah. can he do? Like to make sure that feels good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was that was actually um, something that Nintendo wasn't necessarily that good at doing. Miyamoto's games, you know, Donkey Kong, maybe Donkey Kong Jr. to a lesser degree, Mario Brothers, like they felt pretty good. But then you look at some of the other NES games of the era, like Ice Climber. I was thinking of Ice Climber, yeah. yeah. That yeah, jump, like, yeah. That jump is so those, bad. Those games just, um, they, they weren't quite there. They were, they were other designers at Nintendo kind of fumbling their way towards something new. But it just, it didn't have the refinement. But Super Mario, his movement was so good. Mm-hmm. Like the way he, you know, could jump in such diverse ways. You had so much control over his movement. Not total yeah. control, but there was like a sense of inertia and a sense of momentum. If you yeah. ran before you jumped, uh, it would change the way right. you jumped. And well, if you and if you if you stopped moving, you slid a little. Right. Bit, there was you know? yeah. and I yeah, think there was all, inertia. All of that super and all of it, but you know, a lot of that super detail oriented approach to what should this guy do really, I think, rests with Miyamoto and his like you know kind of preternatural like understanding of how to make a video game before a lot of people had kind of caught well, on and, to that. And wisely, he's one of the people that is not afraid to go back to the drawing board. Like this does not work. There's an Iwata ass uh, for mm-hmm. the 25th anniversary of Mario that shows the original configuration they had in mind, and the jump button was the up on the deep right, like imagine right, right. <laughs> yep. what that uh, would have been like had that game shipped that way yep. so but somewhere yep. along the process he said no we need to change this or someone said right. no we need and to change and of course this. this is a game too that was designed you know if we're talking about a game designed for the home this is game designed for the D-pad right it's not designed around an arcade joystick mm-hmm. it is designed around a, a D-pad one of the other things I mean even with um, the uh, when I was interviewing uh, Koji Kondo the only time I've ever really talked to him the composer of the music for Super Mario Brothers I mean he was like, yeah, you know, I would I would compose a piece of music and we'd put it in the game and we'd play it and we'd take some of the sound effects that we had and we'd put those sound effects over the music and we'd play the game and we'd see like, okay, uh, based on the speed of the game and what the player is doing and the sound effects and the music, does this music fit? And I think they com- they said they composed like multiple versions of that iconic theme song. That Mario theme song is – a, it's it's like they keyed it up so that it kind of follows along with the speed the player is playing the game. And B, they tried to make all of the sound effects like jumping. You mm-hmm. know, when I when I think it's, of the Mario theme song, I can hear Mario jumping along with the, the theme song because they match those up as mm-hmm. well. So Kondo was 
as much of a part of the game's design team as anybody because he was trying to make things that were harmonious with the rest of everything in sharp contrast to quite frankly how video game music was done for a very long time even after Super Mario Brothers, which is a guy sitting at home would make the music and send them a file and be like, here's the music for your game. <laughs> here's Camp Town Races, yeah. you know. Or that. We've talked about Shigeru Miyamoto and then Koji Kondo, but really the reason Super Mario Brothers works so well is that everyone had a valuable contribution to make. It mm-hmm. was not just a one-person project. Um, Shigeru Miyamoto obviously was the director and the artist, the one who kind of had the overall vision for the game. Um, Koji Kondo was the composer and the sound effects creator, and he worked really carefully hand-in-hand with the game's designers. But we should also mention Takashi Tezuka, who was responsible. He was the designer, which basically means Mm -hmm. an artist, which basically means he was the person who laid out the levels Mm -hmm. and made them, you know, like created the obstacles and the challenges Mm -hmm. for players. I think I remember an old, old interview with Miyamoto in which he, like... He 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 looked at uh, the fact that there was a thing called a producer in, in in movies, and he like gave himself that title, and he would say like, "Oh yeah, I'm this game's like producer." And and to that point, there had not been such a title in terms of because most video games at that point were being designed, especially in the U.S., by like a guy who would sit down make the video game, and then sell it to a publisher and be like, here's the video game. Like, maybe somebody else would get in on the action. But um, it was just, you know, sort of David Crane sits down, makes Pitfall, done. Um, but in the, you know, in Super Mario Brothers with Miyamoto, sort of like the the showrunner, you know? Like, everybody Actually, the, the, is the, contributing the credited producer for the game is Hiroshi Ikeda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so he, he gave the producer title to someone else, apparently. Right, well, right, right. But yeah, director, producer, like it was a production yeah. as opposed to – How did – where did that credit come from? Because uh, <laughs> it wasn't in the game. It wasn't in the instruction manual. Was it not? No. Did the instruction manual have so. credits? No, oh, I don't think so. The last few so, pages no. are like secrets. Yeah, I was going to say. They might, have, they might have tagged him as producer because he oversaw, you know, like – I mean, I'm not crediting Hiroshi was, Yamauchi, the executive the, producer. Right. Well, maybe in the, the producer in the sense of like – because Miyamoto has never been called a great you know, manager. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably what he kind of was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, uh, the last two pieces of the puzzle are Toshihiko Nakago and Kazuaki Morita who were the programmers for the game. And they also played an essential role because they weren't just like coding the game. I mean they – like the reason Mario Super Mario Brothers works so well is because all the art and all the levels and everything fits together so well with the programming and the physics. And mm-hmm. Bob, you said you wanted to talk about meta tiles. I think this is, yeah. Yeah. Like this is this is a bit from uh, from I Am Error also. Yeah. It just helps kind of clarify how complex creating this game was and what kind of hoops they had to jump through. Yeah, like when you learn about meta tiles, you will be amazed. At the You'll fact that the levels them. are so fun to play because, yeah, just yeah. talk about All it. I see are meta tiles now. You're right, Chris. Yep. But basically, yep. like, like going into the book, reading the book, I was like, of course, like an NES game is designed like tile by tile, screen by screen. That's not true. It's like there are like – I guess you would call them uh, pre-existing templates. Like if there's like a six-block stretch of nothing – 
with just the blue sky behind it. That is a meta tile in the game. So mm-hmm. that is just one piece of data they can grab from a bank. So a lot of levels are constructed from those meta tiles. So you'll, that's why you see pieces of some levels and other levels if you pay attention. That that way they don't have to program every single tile in the game because there's not enough space for that. Yeah. So like it's so ingenious how they they thought of that system. I don't know if they they think, thought about it in advance for scrolling games or not because everything was just one screen. But yeah, mm-hmm. meta tiles are essentially why this game could be so big and why like a lot of NES games could be big. Yeah, yeah. it's almost like you know, a, a fractal approach like you know at the very basic level graphics are represented by a pixel a single dot but then you know there you put eight by eight pixels together 64 pixels together and you have a tile and then you put you know like four of those together and you have a a, a, or 16 of those together or whatever it is and you Mm -hmm. have a meta tile and you put those together and you have a level so it's it's kind of like looking at things and then Zooming it down to the fine details and making sure everything mm. fits together. I have to wonder if they had like little cutouts of those meta tiles, like you know how they drew things out on graph paper. Like I if they had those, yeah. like yeah. as like existing pieces, they could move around and then right. like draw the final ones. Now there were certain things. I mean, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think I've ever played through all of Super Mario Brothers. I mean, you know, like I've never like gone from World One One and then played every single world up through Eight Four. Um, I've probably played around in most, oh, except for probably like. Maybe Super Mario All Stars when you know you could sort of save and they kind of wanted you to go world by but world. But they changed the physics. But, How could you? Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think I've ever done I'm it like on it. an NES. Um, but a lot of those levels in the middle, you know, there's some. You know, eventually it gets a little bit repetitive, right? I mean, you know, I mean, they'll even you'll even, as you said, see bits of levels and other levels. But there are certain parts of Super Mario Brothers that were much more important than say World, you know, seven. Two or whatever, and they they really very carefully engineered some of those things. Yeah, they um, put the data where it needed to be. You yeah, know, like for yeah. like a very specific kind of like arrangement of blocks. It wasn't all meta tiles. Right, yeah. right, right. So was manipulation of those meta tiles then the way that people discovered glitchy Mario and on the Famicom version in Japan? So have you guys heard of that? Uh, so I was mm. reading Legends of Localization, which is uh, from the show Clive. Did you say uh, Unchi Mario? No, glitchy, uh, glitchy, oh. <laughs> glitchy Mario. Uh, yeah, Legends of Localization, which is uh, from the show uh, Clyde Mandolin. Uh, Mm -hmm. sort of curates and does sort of these comparisons on localization. There's a video embedded that there was basically a trick in Japan that you played a certain – you'd load up your game, basically rip it out of Mario Brothers, put in tennis, play a certain amount, rip that out, put the game back, and there was a continue trick. And it would load a level which wasn't really a level. It was – some of them were just unpassable, like spaces. But they were areas that you can run through and play in. And there were 256 of them. That was more taking advantage of just the way the NES functioned. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think iMera has a has a portion about that where it's like if you yeah. if you plug in a new NES game, it's pulling from like the characters that are banked in the NES's RAM or whatever. So it's, mm. it's pl- going to plug them into the game you're playing. But yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. We had a um, a prototype of an NES game once, and I put it in. And I couldn't figure out what on earth it was because um, the game played fine and there was music, but all the graphics were glitchy. And um, somebody had put the CHR chip in upside down. Uh. So it was just, it didn't know. It was just started pulling random, not random, but it pulled <laughs> the the other end of the graphics off and created all these glitches. Hmm. So we flipped it around. It was fine. And what game was it? It was BioForce 8. Oh, okay. Oh, thank God. <laughs> that would have been quite the let's play. Let me tell you. What yeah. game is this? Yep. Tell me.
Oh, but I wanted to mention, um, it, it, you know, very specifically, um, the the very beginning of World One One um, as a as a sort of a marvelous piece of game design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that people kind of figured this out um, the way that it's designed before Miyamoto or anybody ever spoke about it publicly. But I believe in the run up to Mario Maker, they did come out and say, "Oh yeah, this is how we designed this." Um, the beginning of one one, which you know, just sort of to rush through it. There's a Goomba. You eventually learn maybe by dying that you have to jump over the Goomba. Now you're jumping and you get into that situation where there's the blocks above you. There's a pipe in front of you and there is a really, really good chance you're going to jump and hit those blocks and that a mushroom is going to pop right. out. And, but and then, you're, you're enticed to hit the blocks because they have yeah. flashing question marks. So you're like, totally. I want to interact What's with this. In them? Yep. Yeah, um, and you know that jumping is a thing you can do. Like you cannot get to that point without learning that jumping is a thing that you can do. You must learn that. So now that you've learned that and also you're in a safe place because the Goomba is gone, nothing else is coming to get you. You think, oh, jumping, I'll jump and hit this thing. A mushroom pops out. Now, what are you thinking? Oh, crap, a mushroom. That's the thing that killed me, you know, five times trying to get here. So I have to avoid it. So if you try to – you would have to be really, really good at Super Mario Brothers to actually avoid that first super mushroom. Mm. Um, you would have to like do a teeny little jump over it without hitting the bricks over your head because it hits the pipe and comes back after you. Mm-hmm. So the – overwhelming conclusion here is that you are going to hit that super mushroom, become Super Mario, and be like, oh, this is a good thing. Okay, great. And then you're over the pipe and you're on to the rest of the world. But that is that is your tutorial. Like, yeah. that is your wonderful little tutorial about the very basics of playing Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. But it's not done with pop-up text. It's done with an extremely carefully laid out arrangement of blocks and and elements. Yeah, they even do the same thing later with pits where uh, there's a staircase that leads to, like, there's a safe platform in between them. Uh, there's two staircases sort of side by side, right, but then right. the next one, it's empty. Mm-hmm. And even though you've jumped over, like, two pits just to get that far, yeah. you're still being taught, like, oh, well, you don't want to fall on those because that's a problem. Like, mm-hmm. you definitely want to make sure. Right. You and you can potentially you, skip yeah. the first pit. Yeah, because there is a pipe that you can go down before you ever get to a pit. You probably won't find it your first time through, but you could. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, then you go into the underground where it's safe and you completely bypass most of the stage. So that double staircase is is there when you emerge. And so now that becomes your introduction to pits. No, I think it's after that. Is it? Yeah, the the pipe in World 1-1 takes you – Almost all the way to the end of the stage. Yeah, it the last you, two Goombas. It takes you the last two Goombas. Never mind, this yeah. the stage sucks. <laughs> it's yeah. garbage. Yeah. No, but um, even later in the design, they take that large staircase that you climb up to then jump towards the flagpole, and they chop sections oh, yeah. out of it just to Leading make sure. Leading up to World 8-3, yeah. yeah, which is like you've it's got two it. blocks or three yeah. blocks. And yeah. God, when Lucky 2 first showed up, oh my, <laughs> like what that did to me as a kid. I was yeah. like, wait, it throws things at me? I cannot believe it. And of course, when does it first show up? But in World 4-1, which is... If you know about the warp zone, the that's the warp, first yeah. thing you jump to is World 4-1. And you get out there and you come out and Lakitu is now floating in the sky throwing down death bombs at you. And you're like, <laughs> I went too far. Yeah. You're like, I'm maybe, not ready for this. Maybe I shouldn't have warped. Yep. Yeah. Is, is that's, World 1, that's the idea. Yeah. Is World 1-1 the most recreated level in all of games? Like with games that have a level creator function like Little Big Planet, things yes, like that's, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And Gianna Sisters. I haven't, yeah, I haven't done the it. research, but yes. Yeah. Without question. I mean, it has doesn't – um, doesn't Braid recreate it? 
somewhere. So. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere. Certainly, yeah. it's the most recreated in Super up. Mario Maker. Yeah. Right, but as soon as it, yeah, as soon as anybody gets any kind of level creation tool, like I made level one one. Right, great. Which is which is fine, but that level works as a tutorial for Super Mario Brothers because of that game's specific mechanics. If you're not <laughs> trying to teach the physics of Super Mario Brothers, then you're just like saying, "Hey, look, it's a reference." Right. It's like, it's well, like Family it's, Guy. Yeah, it's it's like the first thing people create when they get a new creation tool because they they know it intimately. Oh, sure, sure, and sure. That's fine. What first, people do in yeah. the privacy of their it's homes, right. no problem. Right. It's, it's when that shows up in a in an actual video yeah. game. I'm kind of like, or when or when somebody writes an article like somebody recreated level one one with Fruit Loops. Yeah, yeah. right. It's like okay. the stairway to heaven of game design in that that's the first thing <laughs> yeah. you learn. Right? Now I've yeah. now yeah. I've learned not to eat purple grapefruit. And then I want to fruit put loops. a sign up that says no, no one, one, one one one. Yeah. There you go. But the the uh, the teaching through level design was not something that Super Mario Brothers invented. That's something Miyamoto had already experimented with with Donkey Kong. Sure. Like the the you know you can read it. Ask or Iwata asks where where Miyamoto talks about how. Donkey Kong was designed with that first stage to kind of goad you and teach you what you're supposed to do. Like the first thing Donkey Kong does is toss a a barrel directly into the oil barrel that's right behind Mario. Mm -hmm. So if you just stand there, eventually there's going to be a fireball that comes out and makes you realize, I better get moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you just, you know, play, you come to a ladder, you climb the ladder and keep walking. And around the time that the first barrels actually reach you down the ramps, you reach the the hammer. So Mm -hmm. you kind of Mm -hmm. have this option there of jumping up and getting the hammer. So, yeah, it's like... that idea of sort of creating a safe space for Mario to kind of play around with with, with or for the player to control uh, Mario and play around with mechanics and controls, and then you know here comes a, a challenge. Um, and also, it's like not that's, an, that's it's a not very, an arcade game, so they don't have to kill you. Right. In an arcade game, they have to kill you really fast. Right. And but even, even so, even like Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong yeah. still gave you like yeah. this little grace period. It, did. it wasn't like it did. you immediately died. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, and so did Super Mario. Right. Right. And, and Super yeah. Mario Brothers. Uh, if you don't scroll the screen, you won't see a Goomba. Like until you actually start That's moving right. forward, yeah. there are no enemies, so, so you can move there, back and forth. Even and, then, yeah, yeah. Yep. Like you can, you can kind of like say, press the buttons and say, "What can I do?" Um, and you'll find out what you can do. And then an enemy shows up because you push the screen forward. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's all just very, very beautifully designed, very thoughtful. Um, it puts faith in the player. But at the same time, is very gentle about it. Like mm. here's a here's a very mm-hmm. simple uh, sort of scenario where you're going to learn things whether you like it or not. They even do it um, later on with swimming, right? Where it's just it feels very sort of gentle, and then you find your first pit and figure out, holy cow, there's suction. Yeah, and you can get like dragged under. Yeah, and there's there's coins in there, so you like go down into the the suction pit, and you're like, ah, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, also, uh, just as a side note, uh, I thought I read in an Iwata ask that Iwata helped with the programming for the swimming. Is that true? No. Yeah. Well, that, yes, uh, indirectly. In, yeah. Yeah. We, we talked about this in our HAL episode. Oh, that's yeah. right. No yeah. wonder it's so familiar. So, brief recap. He, um, uh, in case he, you missed it. He, he programmed the Famicom version. The VS balloon Wait, fight. Wait, which one did he do? VS or yeah. Famicom? VS. Oh, okay. So he did unless, the VS. Unless the Iwata asks I read was It was one of the two. So he, yeah. The so Famicom version say, was fine. The arcade version was like, bah. he helped the uh, software production development department or whatever. Right. Software production department. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, right. So, yeah. so Iwata, Hal, did the, Famic, or did the Famicom version and then Nintendo... No. Uh, Nintendo the, Nintendo internally did the Famicom version and then when it came time to make the arcade VS version... I thought they were being developed simultaneously, and Hal had done. 
Famicom version. No, like the Famicom version was developed internally, and he was Hal and and, and Iwata were brought in to help SPD make the oh, versus okay. version work. I'm we we had the same discussion. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I was not I, here. I, I like I read about this two or three different places yeah. beforehand. Mm. Unless every resource that I found was lying to me, yeah. Iwata helped with the uh, the arcade version. Yeah. So either way, whatever anyway. happened, um, Iwata made the suggestion uh, to make the character go more smoothly um, when he was ascending and descending in mm-hmm. Balloon Fight uh, by calculating it using decimals instead of uh, fractions. I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yep. And um, and thus making the character move more smoothly. And then they took that um, that suggestion of Iwata's and they applied it to swimming in Super Mario Brothers, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, maybe blowing your mind a little bit. Swimming in Super Mario Brothers is pretty much like flying in Balloon Fight. Yep. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Just different arm motions. One is flapping up and out. The other is flapping below. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but I, I will never forget um, some of that stuff. And we were talking about warps earlier, even the idea that when you mentioned you warp to 4-1 and how 4-1 starts out looking just like 1-1. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is fine. I got this. Whereas if you warp to 3, it's night. And if you warp to 2, I don't quite remember. I think, I think that one's cheap, underwater. cheap, cheap uh, land bridge one yeah, first, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Or one of those. Oh, okay, okay. So And the verdict is in. <laughs> what right, is so it? Hal did develop – they worked on the console version of Balloon Fight and SRD – Software research uh, development, I believe, uh, worked in the arcade version, and their version sucked. So Iwata went over That's and helped it. create or helped refine the arcade version of Balloon okay. Fight. So, so that was that was so, the missing piece. So what you mean to say is, I was right, mostly, entirely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, should edit this in for the argument you had with Christian yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, just enter a warp pipe and come out in this episode. Sorry. <laughs> right. So the idea basically being that uh, because of Iwata's genius as a programmer, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Super Mario Brothers underwater stages were less unfun to play than they could have been. Right. So indirectly. I wouldn't yes, say that he, they're great. Yeah. I don't really like the underwater stages, but yeah. they could have been so much worse. We've been um, blowing a lot of smoke up Super Mario Brothers' ass uh, to talk about how amazing it is. Mm-hmm. It's all great to be theoretical and like, oh, it's so important. But the, the, <laughs> proof, the proof is in the play. So for the, for a little while, I'd like for us to just kind of talk about our experiences with Super Mario Brothers. Oh, sure. I mean, cool. what, what fun is Retronauts without nostalgia and memories? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure all of us have memories of Super Mario Brothers. It was such a landmark video game for people of our age. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't want a Nintendo. We wanted Super Mario Brothers. Like we had friends in 1987 or so who had a Nintendo and they had, we'd go over to their house and play Super Mario Brothers. And like we had like an Atari computer. We had video games, you know. But oh, my God, just playing that game. 
madness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my brother and I just decided to be like the world's, you know, just worst, whiniest children. It was a, it was a rare moment of teamwork for the two of us. We had a, we had a mutual goal, and uh, any and all. Um, uh, differences were set aside in pursuit of getting ourselves a Nintendo, um, which our parents then got us a Nintendo because they like cool stuff too. So. Wait, so did that alliance continue in Super Mario Brothers? Like, was it a friendly pass the controller environment? Because no, it was not I mean, in my we, house. Once we had the Nintendo, I mean, you know, all bets were off. Okay, so. <laughs> got it, got it. Yeah, I, I used to uh, just. I actually sucked at uh, Super Mario Brothers in no. video games. I was, I was actually terrible at video games. My brother was. You were good born at to be a games, games journalist. Uh, yeah. yeah, pretty well. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can't be a, uh, I, I can't be an MLG player. Um, yeah. yeah, I was bad. Uh, I couldn't really do it. My brother was really great. So I would just I would actually just sit and watch him play Super Mario Brothers, um, and uh, yeah, I would get very excited, you know, when he would do really well, like jumping up and down, like just watching him play it. But eventually, I started. I mean, what eventually happened is like I just got super, super, super into it, and he was just mm. like, "Oh, video games, they're okay." Yeah, mm. right. Nice. Yeah, no, it was the opposite experience at my house where <clears throat> my sister was terrible at games. And I was a bratty child who did not have did not have the <laughs> patience to sit and watch her play it. Um, so I used to just like not throw tantrums, but <laughs> basically show like I was not happy that I had to wait through this uh, this um, performance. The charade, <laughs> the charade, this kabuki yeah. theater. Yes. But uh, once she died, that I'd grab the controller and stay alive as long as I could um, and try to get us ahead. But we never could finish it as a team. Uh, my sister's only a year older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we, it was never like let's work together to finish it. It's more like no, I'm going to finish it, and you are going to watch. <laughs> was my kind of my attitude. I regret that, but you're a kid, like you don't know better. Yeah. I, I never actually beat Super Mario Brothers until a few years ago when I did the Anatomy of Super Mario Brothers blog series mm. because it was kind of a, a game that I cut my teeth playing. And after I actually got Super Mario Brothers, um, I was really bored of it because I'd been playing it at a friend's house. So like 1980. Seven or so, I would you know walk home from school with a friend of mine who lived just just down the block, and he was the first kid on the block to have an NES, and uh, so he was playing Super Mario Brothers all the time in the privacy of his own home. I would go over to his place, and he would be amazing at it, and I was like, "How do I control with a cross shape? How weird!" So I would die horribly, and he would mostly spend our time hanging out playing Mario together, being the one who was playing. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like learned to play video games the NES way. Uh, sort of with little dribs and drabs while he wasn't dead. Um, And then, you know, eventually, like a year later, I got my own NES, and I was so sick of Super Mario Brothers that I just never really played it after we bought it. Um, I jumped immediately to Metroid and started buying other games. And uh, so it wasn't until years and years later that I finally went back and and played Super Mario Brothers and finished it all the way through, uh, which was kind of... uh, a long time coming, I suppose. But I actually, I I got really good at NES games. I'm sure I could have gone at any point and actually finished Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, if I could beat Battletoads, <laughs> I'm sure I could beat Super Mario <laughs> Brothers. Yeah, you should yeah. be. Yes. But uh, I just, I didn't want to play it. I was so sick of it. And, you know, Super Mario Brothers 2 came out, and it was so much cooler than Super Mario Brothers. Like, there was four characters and better graphics and, like, really crazy multi-scrolling worlds and, and 
secrets and all kinds of stuff. I just I could not go back to the original Mario. Mm -hmm. It was just too hard. So it took (laughs) years for me to really gain an appreciation for the game again. I I was actually in the same boat. I didn't beat it until Deluxe uh, on the Game Boy Color. And that one was harder to finish just because the screen wasn't drawn. Oh, yeah, yeah. I tried tried finishing it on as Deluxe, and I was like, oh, no thanks. Yeah, it was interesting that they added the the sort of the overworld mechanic to it where you saw kind of the the journey like with the graphics instead. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah, it's interesting that Super Mario Brothers, you mentioned it, has had this uh, this 30-year life. We're not just commemorating like, oh, this game came out 30 years ago. Like Super Mario Brothers is one of those games that, you know, Nintendo, I mean, to the extent that a video game can be, like Nintendo has always tried to keep it in print in the sense of like, you know, they had it on the NES and then they did Super Mario All-Stars on the Super Nintendo, which was a total reworking, but, you know, um, and then... Uh, on the Game Boy Color, had Super Mario Brothers Deluxe, and it was an uh, Animal Crossing. It was an Animal it? Crossing, yeah. and, game, and then even, even though it was like completely impossible yeah. to get right. those games. There were e cards. Yep, then, there was uh, e cards, and then it was Virtual uh, Console. Well, no, oh, Famicom, Famicom Mini or NES Classics, yeah. and that yeah. was the beginning of the Famicom nostalgia boom in Japan mm. because that was the that was 2004. So that was the 20th ish anniversary of the Famicom kind of mm. going on there. Yep, um, and then uh, and then Virtual Console. Well, and they've always sort of tried to, been, and even on the 3DS. And, and then the Mario Wii All-Stars Wii collection Wii for Wii, Wii because... Right. Because <laughs> yeah, that what a, what a great commemoration. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to talk about how I met Super Mario Brothers, if Go I may. It. Is that Please. cool? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kids, like, in the summer of 1983. The year was 1987. Uh, yeah. So... I, I just – I don't know if you guys have the same experience as me, but, like, I've had flirted with games before. Like, I would play Pac-Man standing on a milk crate and, like, mm-hmm. our family was also poor and we had an Atari 2600. Um, mm-hmm. And games were all a dollar because the video game market exploded. So yeah. I, I had tons of, like, time with those games and I was like, oh, these are fun. Yeah, this is neat. But, like, as soon as – like Chris was saying, like, as soon as you saw Mario Brothers, like, the world changed. Like, I knew, like, this is what my life is about now. Like, video games are what I'm doing forever. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't want any other toys. Toys are garbage. No more action figures, no more anything. I want video games. There was such a bright line distinction between these diversions, these sort of games that we had played on the Atari 2600 for our generation yeah. and Super Mario Brothers, which just felt like this interactive cartoon. Yeah, I mean, that that seems crazy now, but it really was back then. And it's like, I talked about the characters and the setting being really important. And it was to me because, like, I was not drawing things from Atari games. But as soon as I played Mario Bros., I was drawing Turtles and Mario and Luigi and their adventures and things coming out of pipes. Like, that really captivated my imagination just because the NES could render things like that. And it was that cartoony world. But like I said, like, if it wasn't for that game, I don't know if I would be doing this because, like, it was just like, oh, these are fun things that I do sometimes. But then with Mario, it's like, no, I'm always doing this I am Mr. Video Games now and this is my <laughs> life and, yeah. and that yeah. was something that Nintendo always said even way back there's very old interview with Miyamoto in which he talked this is, it, was, it was in the Mario Mania guide that mm, that's a great Power book did. Yeah. that's become my bible the... since Super Mario Maker oh you know? sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I spend the... lots of time time cuddling that book <laughs> And uh, one of the ver- one of the few things he says in that interview that gave a clue to their design process is, oh, we always draw the the pixel art, the dot character. We always draw that first, and then from that, that's where we make the other artwork, like on the package in the instruction manuals. Mm. And that was that was that bottom up type of game design because a lot of other games were being designed by somebody would like draw this elaborate character, and then there, they'd make a little pixel stick figure. There of might that be something to that because uh, that's stick. that's how. Uh, Keiji Inafune designed Mega Man, like yeah. the character Mega Man. It started with Akita Kira, Akira Kitamura's pixel art version mm-hmm. of Mega Man that was just like we wanted to make a character that looked good in NES pixel graphics. Yeah. And then Inafune was like, well, I have to draw a character 
as a cartoon character who looks like the sprite. So what, that's what he came up with was the kind right. of boyish Mega Man character. And and so many – I mean this this sort of had this divide between – you know, we, we experienced a lot of American-made games on our NES and we experienced a lot of Japanese-made games. And why I think people started thinking, oh, why are these Japanese games, you know, so good? Um, one of those intangible qualities is that like, you know, American – the characters drawn by, you know, American pixel artists were sort of taken from some other, you know, was trying to like recreate it in pixel art. And, you know, often it just looked like shit. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Yeah, they weren't no, just interpreting other people's art. They're using the tools of the system to make that art. And then like from there you can create a fun cartoon out of that for packaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fairness, lots of Japanese games also took that um, – the other approach of, of taking a cartoon character – and turning it into pixels. That already existed. And yeah. they were <laughs> just designing a character and right. turning it into pixels. And they were bad. They were they were not very good. Not, maybe not always. I'm sure there are <clears> some, <throat> some examples. That Yurusa Yatsura game for the Famicom. That, 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 that's not Lum. That's not Lum. Lum, yeah. Lum just needs to get married. Yeah. That's all it's about. Yeah, I am fascinated, though, by how this game touched, like, everyone in this room. I mean, even personal friends we know, like, friend of the show, Kyle McLean. That's the reason he, you know, learned Japanese, moved out to Japan. Sure, yeah. Like, Mario Brothers was so inescapable and you can find it in the Super Mario Super Show which by today's standards if you try to watch that show (laughs) yeah not so good I mean video games I mean you're absolutely right I mean there's uh, I don't think anybody has really touched on yet like uh, and I don't mean just in this podcast but just in in a general sense like just how important um, Super Mario Brothers you know Japanese video games were towards um, opening up uh, people's eyes about Japan Mm -hmm. uh, because you know even in an era where kids didn't really come into contact with Japanese comics or movies or even anime at that time or novels like Japanese video games were this uh, cultural kind of object that um, people all over the world were getting in touch with and and it's amazing. Like I, I look at my life, and it's like, yeah, the same way as Kyle McLean. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you can trace um, the path of my life in going to Japan and taking Japanese and majoring in Japanese yeah. and living in Japan. Um, all came from that first interaction with Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. So it's and and when you look at how many people would say the same thing, you'd, you'd probably find quite a few. It's, it's pretty. Please, amazing. please look forward to the second <laughs> printing of Power Up. How Japanese video games gave. Yeah, like, uh, Japanese games gave video games an extra life. I really feel like coming that, soon. From like, that is almost the subtitle. Yes. This uh, is coming not, in um, spring 2016. Thank you. This is not off topic, I, I think at least, but I think like Minecraft is that game for like the kids of today. Like yeah. that's yeah. the same effect. Like, they're, they're all going to move to Sweden. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Is that what's going to happen? I think so. And buy fedoras? They're, they're going to have trouble finding apartments. <laughs> no, but I, I see your point, right, in that it was it's kind of a, a cultural um, – it, it just kind of transcended just being a video yeah. game. I think Angry Birds yeah, is I, in the same boat, right. I, like, even though it's not going to sustain from what, the way it seems. If I'm out but, in uh, public and I see a kid talking about a video game, that video game is Minecraft, yeah. like without a doubt. Absolutely. And, and like, yeah. That is tw- the Super Mario Brothers of this yeah, generation. 25 so years the question ago, is yeah. where does that – what does that inspire in them and where, where does that lead them? That's a good question. I guess yeah. we're not going to find out until uh, – Until they yeah. Yeah, become adults and yeah. They all live in big blocky houses. <laughs> <laughs> Ikea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the natural conclusion to all yeah, life. Yeah, it is. I think so. It basically yeah. is. Yeah. The, Build the, your own furniture. The, the sum of all life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the you, you make a great point in that um, – 
Super Mario Brothers was localized almost exactly. Like, they changed some names. Koopa became Bowser or right, whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, they didn't tone it down for the U.S. They didn't say, oh, kids might see the mushroom that makes you big and think, right. oh, like, it's promoting drugs or anything like that. Like, they, it was just Mario. It was happy and lighthearted. And, you know, that calliope music and the blue skies came through just fine. Carl Masek did not say, I need to combine, like, three different video games and make Mario part of that the way, you know, anime was localized at the time. There there was no need to disguise its origins. It was just a great universal game that spoke to everyone. Mm -hmm. And there were certainly – I mean – Obviously, there were differences in NES culture versus Famicom culture, right? Like, there's some pretty big differences. Um, And so, yeah, we skipped most of the really garbage games. Right, right, true. (laughs) But then again, we didn't get Mother either. You know what I mean? Which was kind of a big deal. Kind of a garbage game, if you want to be. Get out of here. Um, (laughs) Get right out of here with that. Um, But uh, the it is profound. I mean, it is ridiculous because in all of human history, when I when I did move to Japan and I made friends there who were my age and we could talk about having these identical childhood experiences of playing Super Mario Brothers together, like that is not a thing that happened quite often, if at all, in human history to that point that people living on opposite ends of the world from each other would have uh, such a similar um, profound cultural you know thing to latch onto to get together later on and be like oh yeah this this element of our childhood was so similar the Star Wars of video games the hmm. yeah that that it was it was such a global product in an era in which um, there were very few global products that were not like American movies at mm-hmm. that time it was the American movie and the Japanese video game mm-hmm. um, uh, how did you guys actually become uh, inducted, I guess, into the Mario series. I feel like <laughs> I might be somewhat unique in that I had actually come to Mario, Super Mario Brothers, by playing all the Mario games to that point. Like, uh. I was very young when Donkey Kong came out, but, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that I remember playing it. Uh, played Donkey Kong Jr. in the arcades. Uh, you know, the, I, I was kind of talking my parents into going to pizza parlors and, like, showbiz pizza and that sort of thing, sort of during the golden era where... Donkey Kong Jr. came out and then Mario Brothers and I remember playing um, even Donkey Kong 3, which wasn't a Mario game. Mm. But I, re- I remember Punch-Out! in the arcades before Mar- <laughs> Super Mario Brothers came out. So like Mario – didn't go to a lot of arcades before the first Well, like Mario pizza Brothers parlors basically. Or even – or yeah, or really even, even that. I can't remember playing a lot of – Arcade games, but like right, I think you might be Donkey young Kong enough that you didn't, Mario you didn't Brothers, really have the way to get there. They were games that were accessible to me because like we had an Atari that had Donkey Kong on it. Probably had Mario Brothers, uh, but it was just one of many games. Like it didn't, they didn't stick out to me as being, um, you know, any like something special that I was really into. Yeah, I had, I had by that point, I had seen Mario in so many games that he was, you know, even before Super Mario Brothers came out as ubiquitous a video game figure to me as as Pac-Man was. Like, Pac-Man was the big deal. Mm. Um, and, you, you know, he was, he was the big video game breakout star, but he eventually kind of faded away, and as he was fading away, Mario was still appearing in a lot of games mm-hmm. and just kind of this universal figure who, who showed up in all these games that I kind of recognized Nintendo's name, but the, I, I, the game that really sort of jumped out to me was the arcade version of Punch-Out! because it looked so... So good. It was like huge graphics and really just uh, like very energetic and bright and colorful. I still think it looks good. Yeah, it's an amazing looking game. And I saw the Nintendo Uh logo up there and I was like, Nintendo. I remembered Mm. that name. 
So then when the NES came out and, you know, there's Mario, it made sense to me. I was like, this is it. This is this is where we're going. Mm. I, think I, I think I just traced it backwards, you know, like I would play these games not have an effect on me or have a very little effect. But then once Mario was like the key to unlocking, like, oh, he was in this game and this game and he's the referee in this game. Like mm. that was like kind of what made me like turn on my brain, I guess. Either that or, like, literally my brain was growing because I was a child. Yeah, just the more I think about it, I mean, I didn't know what an NES was. I just, you know, I I, I told the, just very briefly told the story where we had an Atari for, like, a day, and my mom was not satisfied with it. Like, she oh, popped really? in Miss Pac-Man, and she was like, this is garbage. Oh, she, that's so well, She didn't say that, but that was kind of her conclusion is this is not good. This is not what I like. And huh. she had it returned. I cried my little eyes out because I was like, but we had video games. Right, now. right, right. And then uh, for Christmas um, of what I'm, what I remember is 1985. I, I hope it's not 86, but it could be. Um, I got an NES, and I got to experience. And I will never forget certain games I played. Like I'll never forget the first time I heard Gyromite, and I will never forget when I heard Mario Brothers because that that song is so infectious. Like mm-hmm. you hear it, you want to hear the whole thing, even though it's 30 seconds. And I was in from that point. Like Bob, it stood out to me that Mario kept popping up in other games. And I thought that was really cool. But um, it was just something that I wasn't used to seeing. But also video games were so new to me that I had nothing to really compare them to. Yeah. Like we had a Commodore 64, but which, you know, for example, the sound was superior on that machine. But none of the games stood out to me the way Mario did and the way Metroid did. And, yeah. the way and you know, did. Mario also kind of managed to sort of hover in pop culture consciousness before Super Mario Brothers with the Saturday cartoon, Saturday morning cartoon, the Donkey Kong cartoon. And then, uh, like, he was actually a villain there. But then there were, you know, Donkey Kong products like coloring books and sticker books and stuff that I owned. Mm-hmm. So he was just like this, he was always kind of there for as long as I've been playing video games. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it they, made sense to me. Like, here's this amazing game. And, yeah, it's just another Mario game. He's he's the guy who, like, he's the superstar. He's yeah. like, he's pa- Pac-Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, I was waiting for that next big Pac-Man game to come, and it never did. But then, then Mario had a breakout. Right. Yeah. I think you had a very different experience than a lot of people because I don't think Nintendo was a, sort of a recognized brand to the, you know, the average person before the NES came out. Mm. I mean, I I don't know if I necessarily connected Punch Out to the NES, mm-hmm. but I just remember seeing Punch Out in the arcade. Yeah, and seeing and the Nintendo name Nintendo. On. Like, I mean, like, oh, okay. I knew I I knew I had seen that name around, but this was that was the first time that I was just like, wow, mm-hmm. I need to pay attention to this company. They're incredible. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, Punch Out was. Yeah, graphically just yeah. ridiculous. But I mean, uh, this may not, uh, I hope this is somehow relevant, but I think for all of us in this room, the, the biggest moment with Mario was Mario 3. Like, it felt like there was no game bigger, there was no Mario game, at least leading up to that, that felt like it had that kind of an impact. That commercial alone, mm-hmm. like, brought the hype levels to places that I don't think we'd ever expected <laughs> to have over a video yeah, game. That was that was Mario uh, at its absolute, you know, the height of Mario's popularity for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah, and that was a masterfully executed release, absolutely. That and yeah. the Wizard with, together. With Super Mario Brothers, I mean, Nintendo... Nintendo of America knew, I think, that it had a hit on its hands for the any like super, that Super Mario Brothers was going to be good, um, and that it you know had the potential to be like a killer app. But I mean, they would have launched the NES without it, right? I mean, they they made their plans to launch the NES before Super Mario Brothers came out in Japan. Mm-hmm. So that the NES was coming out, 
um, and and Mario followed, you know, very soon after. Um, in in both, I mean, you know, it came out in Japan in September, but by that time they already had, you know, they would have already had to be shipping pallets of NESs over to the U.S. So it's interesting to think about, like, well, what would have happened with the NES had Super Mario Brothers not come out yeah. um, it was still such a step above any console that had come true. before i i mean the first game i but saw for nes really buying it either i i can't speak to that yeah. um i know that i had a lot of friends who had nes's and mm-hmm. i you know i had friends who didn't have super mario brothers because they got the the robot set gyromite duck hunt. yeah, yeah. so yeah. they had yeah so like you know i had fr- my friend with the action set who had super mario brothers yeah and then friends who had you know the, the light gun and the robot um, and you know, I still had fun playing the other games at their house. Maybe mm-hmm. not, not, maybe not so much with stack up, but, uh, <laughs> with the other games. Um, yeah, like the, the NES, you have to keep in mind that, that, that sort of lull in the American console market after the Atari crash, there just wasn't anything happening along those lines. The first thing I ever saw on NES was a demo of Kung Fu, which was not a, as good a game as mm-hmm. Super Mario Brothers, but I still remember seeing it and just being like, Wow, that's a great looking game console. I mm. didn't know the word console, but you know, great looking game system. It wasn't a computer. It was something that was priced within a range where, hey, maybe someday I could actually buy that as opposed to, you know, like a $1,600 Amiga. Um, right. So, right. so it really like kind of made me pause and, and really take stock of it. Um, you know, after playing Super Mario Brothers, it was hard to go back to like Hogan's Alley or Gumshoe or something. I mean, Pitfall, I bet. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's not yeah. an NES game. No, uh, I'm saying like their their launch lineup yeah. still looked really good compared to previous game consoles, yeah. even if they were very simplistic compared to Super Mario Brothers. Yes, I, I think, I think if Super Mario Brothers had come along a year later, the NES still would have done pretty well for itself. But mm-hmm. I think having NES or Super Mario Brothers in tow. Uh, just made it a, a no-brainer proposition. Like, who didn't want to own that game? Yep. No, completely agree with that. Do we want to talk about the Super Mario Brothers legacy? I mean, it's uh, sure. Like what the we we've talked a little bit about that, mm-hmm. but I mean, just the, Super Mario Brothers well, is so influential in yeah. terms of design. Well, people, I mean, first of all, just the genre itself. People always put, oh, it wasn't the first platform game. It's like, well, yeah, okay, it was the like, first one know, that really mattered, right? It was the it was Pac-Land the, was it not was going the to launch progenitor of the genre, right? Pac-Land was not going to launch a thousand imitators, but this did, right? Yeah, at least in the U.S., maybe not so much in Japan, but in the U.S., like mm-hmm. platformers were the default eight-bit video game style, and even yeah. even into the sixteen-bit era. And you can pin that on Super Mario Brothers. Mm. Like if, if that game hadn't existed, that platform genre would not have evolved as quickly as it did or become as popular as it did. But they showed the way and said, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. And so you had you know several years of people throwing their <laughs> throwing themselves at the, the wall of utility, trying to make a game as good as Super Mario Brothers and failing. And then, you know, people starting to kind but of they, take it in different directions yeah. and build on Super Mario Brothers and find new iterations like, mm-hmm. you know, Mega Man or Castlevania or Contra. 
Like they started to take new inspirations when they when they tried to duplicate Super Mario Brothers exactly, it didn't necessarily work out so well. But as the launch pad for something different, but but related, but spiritually connected, uh, yeah, like that that's when the NES really started to shine. Right, because a lot of you know any genre could it, did, it didn't necessarily need to be the platform game, the side-scrolling, running, jumping weapon platform game genre that became that standard, you know, default um, on on those consoles. It could have been anything. Yeah, I mean, you look at the PC Engine or the Genesis, and those were like sports and shooters. Mm-hmm. That's what people wanted on those systems. But I really think the presence of Super Mario Brothers at the NES launch in the U.S. and, you know, early on in the the Famicom's life really shaped taste, just like Dragon Quest in Japan and uh, Portopia in in Japan caused adventure games and RPGs to become sort of like what everyone wanted to make. Uh, Super Mario Brothers was the big deal, especially in the U.S., because that's what we started out with on the NES, and that's what... That's what we bought. That's what we wanted. And we weren't going to get anything that was text-heavy. So, you know, it was going to take a long time, if ever, for Dragon, you know, took a long time for Dragon Quest. Uh, It took a very long time for Portopia. In fact, we're still waiting for it. (laughs) (laughs) We we did get the uh, the MacVenture ICOM games. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Tombs and Treasures and a few things. Of course, those were originally written in English, right? So there was no localization. uh, Like, they were already been translated. Uh, Tombs and Treasures was Japanese. Oh, okay. But, that was but, a uh, Nihon Shalcom game. Was, yeah, yeah, right. yeah they, uh, the ICOM stuff, yeah. sure. Yep. Well, late, yeah, later on in the NES's lifespan, we started to see people translating more text-heavy games to see, like, oh, well, the NES is a huge uh, install base now, so let's see if this kind of thing can work. Sure. But not when Dragon Quest came out in 1986. <laughs> was yeah. anybody yeah. willing to touch that? Yeah, yeah as we're like these days, like I feel like uh, we talked to um, Keiji Nifune recently and he sort of credited, and, and you know, in hindsight, it's easier to say this than maybe at the time, but he said, yeah, there would be no Mega Man if there was no Mario, yeah. right? Like it yeah. wasn't just about the success of that genre, but just how well that game turned out um, that really sort of woke up a lot of companies to, hey, we need to try something similar to this and maybe not copy it wholesale. It, the, the people who were successful were the people who understood how it worked and why it was good rather than trying to copy the the, the sort of superficial form of it. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, guy walks to the right and jumps on things. Great. Okay. Yeah, here's, here's yeah. Atlantis Nonazo. Enjoy. Right. Here's Kid Cool. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get ready for Gianna, this. Gianna Sisters, once again, said it twice. But yep. uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it is the inf- – I still will never forget when we booted that on a Commodore 64. And I'm just like, what is this? Yeah. The first area is absolutely a 1-1 remake. Mm-hmm. It blew my little mind. I was like, well, I didn't know this Well, people wanted Mario on other platforms at that point. That's so, right. I mean, there were like bootleg Mario games on the PC. Yeah. And, well, know. and I guess that's the thing we haven't talked about, right? The the idea of Mario as the killer app and something that like, holy cow, this is mm-hmm. 100% the system seller. It's not showing up on other platforms. This is your reason yeah. to buy this system. Yeah, I well, think, I think bought, the um, – <laughs> There were some computers in Japan that Nintendo uh, had Hudson. Yeah, the Sharp X1. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's man. right. Super Mario Brothers Special and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was a flick screen side scroller yeah. game uh, and terrible. Yeah, yeah. Watch, watch videos of that online. And oh man, I, I want to re- I want someone to remake that it. in Super Mario Maker. <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably like do they it. Can, they, instead of doing the flick screen, they could use like a door so that every every, sta- every, every section is like should, a yeah. single screen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something something you mentioned. Um, actually, I don't remember where I was going to go with that. But you know the uh, oh like. Chris, you mentioned something about um, appreciating, like, why Mario worked. I think it's really important to look at how limited that game is. You know, again, it was made for an in-ROM, which was, like, the the small uh, pre-memory mapper chip version of the NES cartridge. 
very limited. I, what is it, like 16K or something like that? It's it's really small. It's really small ROM. Yeah, Maybe I thought 32. it was I, – I, I might be wrong. I think it was 32 and then like 32 for the – Character and eight for the program, or yeah. the other way around. But it's it's like minuscule. I, I mean, wrong. what can it's, you do with what can you do with thirty two k on a modern right. computer? I mean, that's that's the uh, that's the most you could do with the NES uh, out of the box. Right, like it, you had to start adding in coprocessors mm-hmm. right. and more RAM onto the cartridge to do any more. Right. So so that was kind of like the limit of the NES. But even so, it's an extremely it, the game itself is very limited. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at it, it's so minimal. There's so right. little in the game, like just a few enemies, a few background objects. Yeah. Reuse sprites. But but if you look at where they put the extra detail, it really tells you a lot. Like, you know, when Mario kind of skids to a halt with inertia, he kind of leans yeah. back into it and that's raises cool up his arm. That's a and that's, that's a, a that's, that's a expensive to that, use. That is yeah. a completely like extra optional animation that they spent a lot of data space on. Yeah. But it, it adds so much personality to the game. Like totally. All of a sudden you're not just like a guy running forward. You're like a guy running forward and then you're like, whoa, gotta stop. And it gives yeah. Mario so much personality. Yeah, those trade-offs are such an important part of the Nintendo design philosophy. It's like, well, how important is this? Do we really need this here? And sometimes the it doesn't necessarily have to be a big thing that has a huge impact on the, an immediate visible impact on the game design. It could be a very small thing that has a really visceral impact, and you only notice it if you're really looking right. for it. Yeah. That, that animation could have been another enemy. Yeah. But instead of another enemy, what they did was they gave Mario mer- more personality and really drove home the way you controlled Mario and the way he moved. Mm-hmm. It was, like I said, really small detail. But the fact that they spent their limited data space on that that little detail mm-hmm. really showed what they were after, and it really showed, you know, what the the team like. It demonstrated their their sense, uh, their intuition for what was important to the game and what would make a great experience. Right. Yeah. Meanwhile, the bushes and the clouds are the same, same thing. Yeah. Same yeah. damn yeah, thing. Exactly. Oh, mind yeah. blown. <laughs> yeah, and there's the the skill threshold, right, where you can bounce off of multiple enemies and sort of have that domino effect the way they call it in the manual. Mm-hmm. Or even when we learned, I don't remember when I quite learned that you can bounce off of an enemy and actually bounce higher if yeah. you time the jump at the right spot. Like even that is something that... I never expected to be there. And now that once you discovered it, you can never flip that switch off. You're doing mm-hmm. that in every Mario game, and they've made that consistent in every Mario game, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating as well. And you can make some really bad Mario Maker levels around that mechanic and force people to do it if you want to make sure that they never, like a newcomer never finishes your stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm always surprised too when people say that uh, holding run, like that that finger uh, sort of gymnastics you have to do to hold run and then tap the jump button with mm-hmm. the other part of your thumb, some people can't do that. Some people don't want to do that. I know weird people who, who control their NES by oh. using like their, well, they didn't their two know. fingers on their 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 hand. They like set it down, yeah. and they press left and right with their index and middle finger on their left hand, and A and B with the index and middle finger on their right hand. I'm like, oh, you're doing it wrong. But, I mean, <laughs> but you know, they get their NES home, and there's nothing showing you how to use this newfangled controller. So you might think that you put it on the the ground and you just press the buttons with your fingers, I, I like think it's a keyboard. There was an accessory where you slid it into a piece of plastic, so oh, you yeah. could prop it up and do the finger yeah. kind, kind of controls. It's, right. They were supporting it. That's hedonistic. Yeah. It's terrible. I don't it like is. it. Yeah, but. it was for us at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
So, okay, we've uh, we've we've pretty much run the gamut of things we can say about Super Mario Brothers for now, I think. Um, but one thing that they could have worked a little harder on that Princess Peach sprite. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, or even that Toad sprite like, too. He's just he's kind of present. Like his hands are like yeah, it's yeah. straight it up. Yeah, it didn't quite convey what what the mushroom retainers were supposed to look like. I think everybody trying... always called that the strawberry shortcake yeah. when I was a kid because <laughs> yeah. they didn't really know. Like, Meanwhile, what it was I was like, "What be. the hell is a retainer? What is uh, that yeah, about?" Yeah, as too. a kid, I was Am like, "Am I supposed to put what? that in my mouth?" What? Yeah, you're right. Like, that Princess what? Peach Sprite is one of the yeah. most atrocious. Yeah, I love, I love I love that they brought it back for uh, Super Paper Mario. They did. Like, yeah. You can turn <laughs> the normal Princess Peach Sprite into ugly giant NES. Yep. Princess Peach. Yeah, Sprite. I unlocked yeah. a stamp of that in like Nenius Remix, and I immediately had to post it like just a, a <laughs> horrifying, like <laughs> giant <laughs> pixel peach face. Hey, she uh, was Princess Toadstool till they finally right. she looked yeah. like a Toadstool. Oh yeah, I think she was tortured in that dungeon. I, I have a two Princess theory. She's the first one. The second one has a different face. <laughs> yeah. She's the one to keep in the basement. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Wow, we're all on the same page. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so having having talked about Super Mario Brothers, um, I would like to talk a little bit about just things we've discovered about the game with Super Mario Maker. Mm. Sorry, Bob, I don't have Mario Maker. <laughs> so you can you can close your ears or whatever. That's uh, okay. I, I'm I'm gonna get it. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, it's it's been really great, and I actually find myself drawn to the Super Mario Brothers one tool set a lot. You can use mm. Mario Three, Super Mario World, New Super Mario Brothers. You're a terrible person if you use New Super Mario Brothers. Well, um, <laughs> wait a minute. No, the, actually, I, I, I find this very funny because, of course, I thought to myself, no way in hell am I ever going to touch these gross new Super Mario Brothers palettes. But then I was kind of playing around with stuff, and the first level I designed was about wall jumps. Yeah. Because I realized, yeah, I mean, it, oh, you can do wall jumps in this. That's, and then, that's the frustrating part is it you have to use new Super Mario Brothers to be able to activate wall jumps. Right, right, ah, right. You bastards. Eh, you know, I kind of get it. But yeah. so I, I ended up my first level was with new Super Mario Brothers graphics because I wanted to use wall jumps. Ironic. I did the same thing. But I had to suck yeah. it up. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted wall jumps. Yeah. All right. So I want to – so we we have all of us here on this podcast. So, Jose, you guys uh, at IGN mm. have primarily been doing Mario Maker levels that are insanely hard uh, to yeah. try to uh, make each other – Yeah, you're, you're like, like – like, like you want to You and Brian hate each other rage. basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I thought your first level because I saw your first video, I thought that was totally fair. Okay, I thought thanks. that you – I thought that he was just having a very bad reaction. Yeah, because yeah. Because I thought that – I thought that you had telegraphed a lot of the things that you were doing. I pretty did. I, yeah. I, I love the door uh, troll at the beginning though because I just wanted like you to not – I the door troll. It's yeah, funny. Yeah. 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 Like, you, to realize I don't want that, you to trust me right, basically. Right, right, right. But, uh, but, but then from that point – Well, and that's the thing I think I've discovered. Maybe you can explain what you're talking about for people who – Oh, got it. Okay, so I made a I made a stage in Mario Maker. Uh, you can find this online by looking up. Uh, we had a Super Mario Maker IGN challenge, and I think I called it "Oh Terrible Mansion" or something like that. <laughs> but um, the idea is, I took a ghost le- a ghost house stage, and the first thing you see when you reach the edge of the platform is a door. And you think to yourself, well, I should go through this because that's what these games have taught me. And the minute you do, there is a Bowser you're in a tiny, coming tiny right room at you. With a Bowser. Yeah, you're in a and tiny you can room. Go back. Yeah, you can back. go back, yeah, which yeah. was the joke. But it was just like, okay, don't trust everything that you see. Was kind of the lesson I was going for. And mm-hmm. then where you're like, well, where do I go? So when you jump straight up, you find a hidden block. You get on top of that. You jump up. You find another hidden block. And so I basically was trying to go for the idea of, okay, let me leave you breadcrumbs to take you to this next thing. One thing, though, that this experience with the game and even building that first level taught me 
was you can't always anticipate what people are going to do. <laughs> um, and I ne- I've always heard, de- like we've talked to developers, that's our career, right? We've yep. talked to people who make video games and they bring this up. But this is our first hand, like, actual, like, account, like us being in the situation when we see it. Um, so, like, I realized when I made one path, well, what if you fall and you end up down there? How would you get out of there? And so right. I'd try and find a way to get around that. Um, and so this has been like an eye-opening experience for me where, yeah, I made that level to mostly troll Brian. I'm not going to lie. I tried <laughs> to telegraph a lot of it, but I was out to basically upset him. Um, but and in hindsight, I also felt like I learned a lot yeah. about just how it, what, it, what it is like to make a game. And uh, the tools make it really uh, an experience that's really pleasant. Like, I, you lose a lot of hours to yeah. it. Yeah, and having people play my levels, it's very difficult. Uh, and I failed, you know, at um, just shutting up and letting them play the level because I constantly want to start You want to say something. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, so I I'm not, just, I, I'm, I'm actually, I, I have an easy time with that. Yeah? I'm just like, yeah, just keep going, keep right, going. Right, right, right. You can do it. I'm sure you can do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I played a recent level of yours, by the way, where uh, there are a lot of pipes, um, and it's sort of, uh, I don't, I think it was something Hassle at the Castle. Oh yeah, something Hassle like at the Castle. That. I like Name how that turned out. Favorite Why don't you talk Shrek about that? game. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. well, there you go. Well, I mean, talk about like just the design of that because that's not your first level. That's more like your third. No, or that fourth. was uh, that. That's one that I still need to refine some more. But the mm-hmm. idea was to make a um, uh, a castle stage, and what I was doing with the first few stages I made was to kind of create a like an S loop where you either go back and double mm. back and again or up and then down. So this one you you go up then down then up and, and down again to fight Bowser. Um so yeah, that w- that was where I was really kind of starting to get a feel for the physics and like how you should space objects within the Mario world to make it fun. Uh, because I think there is a tendency for people to make things really dense. And that's not how Nintendo designs its stages. Right. Things are actually kind of spread out. There's a lot of empty space. And it's like each screen is kind of a self-contained, there's a challenge on the screen. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the approach I took with this stage. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically uh, another another philosophy I've tried to adopt with the levels I've designed has been maybe add like, include like three elements that appear throughout the stage instead of just throwing everything in. Make each challenge around a specific type of enemy or two or a specific kind of environmental hazard. So this one is really, um, it's it's a castle stage, so I put a little more in, but it's basically Koopas, um, some Goombas, and then um, moving platforms, piranha plant pipes, and yeah, the fireballs uh, as well. Yeah, or? the fireballs that are just mostly there for uh, for decoration, mm-hmm. um, and then bullet bills. But I was really careful about making sure, like at the beginning of the stage, like in the first half of the stage, most of those things show up just for decoration. Like there's a bullet bill turret that appears and actually fires below the level of the floor. Mm. So it can't hurt you unless you like fall into a pit on top of the bullet bill. But it's there to say like, hey, there's – This is what a bullet bill is. Right. And there's all these things kind of moving around outside of where you're actually going to jump. um, And they kind of create like a psychological stress to make you like feel, oh, tension, you know. But it, it takes a while before there's actually a point where there is a bullet bill that could actually hurt you. Mm, okay. And even you get further into the stage after that and there's still like that first dispenser because you're going up and then down. Like it's still shooting at you in the other direction. Mm-hmm. But again, it's below the level of the uh, the platforms that you can move on. Yeah. So I, I've tried you know, really hard and I don't think that level is actually entirely successful. But I tried really hard to 
kind of build up to greater challenges by iterating mm. on those few elements yeah. within a stage. I did an auto-scrolling castle level with things that yes. will never hit you, mm. like like potaboos that, you know, before you will ever get to them are already falling back down and the screen is going to scroll and they're never going to come back up because I realized, like – it will cause a feeling of tension mm-hmm. in the player regardless of whether it is an actual harm to them. But I think, I mean, I'm very disappointed with all of the Mario Maker levels right now. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's a lot that are designed around clever gimmicks, but I have very rarely played um, somebody else's Mario Maker level and thought to myself, oh, that feels like it could have come out of a Mario game. Yeah, uh, that, that's oh, that been my designed, goal. I, I feel like you and I are... with a nice restraint. Yeah. Right, we're, I we're feel like you and I are, are both trying to make good levels, and yeah. it's really hard. It is. Yeah. It's you guys difficult. need to name names. That's that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a I, bunch I of people. I'm just there, kidding. There is, I'm there just there's one, one designer um, whose levels have shown up in the 100 Mario Challenge. It's uh-huh. some uh, – apparently a Japanese woman. Uh-huh. Uh, and she's remaking like classic Famicom games yeah. uh, in the Mario Maker engine. And they're not especially challenging. Right. But there was one that was like, you know, uh, it was Mario Brothers. Yeah. And so you travel up and there's like a pipe at the top and turtles come out when you get up to the top. Sure. Uh, there was another one that was Load Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, like nice. that was cute. It was, it was, Again, it's not a great is... level but it's it's, you know, like – at least there's kind of a right. like a, a purpose to this. Well, the good, I mean, that's the that that's the problem is that the levels that you play, it's like, oh, that. I mean, somebody did a Rickroll level and it plays never going to give you up, and it's like that's cute, and that probably took a lot of work, but well, what the hell is this? It's, it's not a Mario yeah, level. No, right. It's a cute little thing. It's a it's a nice little distraction, but like, where are the Mario levels? And yeah. I'm, so I'm really wondering, like, this game is not out yet, or actually, I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, Mario Maker will probably be available in stores. So I'm I'm very curious now, like. What is actually going to happen on the Mario Maker download servers with the levels get that get starred or they get bumped up or they get featured? Is it going to be possible to, like, find good Mario levels? Yeah, and 100 Mario Challenge, I have to agree with you. It shows the best and the worst yeah. of what the community can make. And I do say the best because the there's the occasional one I key. find. Yeah, yeah, the skip feature is absolutely, <laughs> like, clutch because yeah. – you know, they give you 100 lives, and it's like, hey, how many do you want to burn on trying this before yeah. you just say, no, I'm done? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I have seen – I think the the level – going back to your question, though, I think the levels that are going to end up getting a lot of attention are some of the ones that, uh, unfortunately, are going to lean on some of the gimmicks. Like some of my favorites have been ones where I don't touch anything, and I just right, watch. Right, right, like, right. There was this one stage I played where this designer like uh, – or, uh, you know, this person, media person, whoever – he set up a bunch of trampolines in Mario 1 that bounce you all over the place. And the instructions when you start the level are do not touch your controller. And he bounces you all over the place through the entire stage. And even one part, there is this clever part where he kicks a shell. It bounces up, takes out a whole row of enemies, and you are right underneath sort of being pushed along. Mm-hmm. So the Rube Goldberg kind of uh, right. approach. But and I liked it. It the, was fun. Yeah, the problem is doing that is deceptively easy. It's, oh, it is. It's very yeah. – it's, it's not – not that difficult because of the way that Mario Maker works. It's like, okay, you set some stuff up. Um, you put Mario on a, a treadmill and you press play and you see what happens. Okay, well, where did he die? Okay, great. Well, do, 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 I'll just adjust this. Sure, okay, sure. Where does he die now? Okay, I'll put some more stuff in But it in still here. takes a lot of work. Oh, like, sure not it to, does. Yeah, but yeah. it's just you're, you're pouring energy into yeah. something that somebody's going to experience for 30 seconds. And then what, and you know what's probably going to happen is it's going to get voted all the way up to the top of the star chart. And that's what I like, think oh, is going to cool. happen. Yeah, I, oh, I, I like yeah. that. I think yeah. I don't have the game yet, but I think it's our job as the press 
to kind of like uh, aggregate content and you know oh. like like sift through this stuff. Look at like the twitters of indie people, like people who make indie games. Like look for people right. who are putting stuff out there They're like this, yeah. Uh, and then like post like the here are the ten best levels this week or whatever. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's our job. Yeah, uh, pretty much. My my challenge, my self imposed challenge, has been to create a functional. One one like world one one equivalent, and mm. I'm still not there. I've I've managed to like pare it down to maybe like a world one two or one three. Yeah, but to create that perfect one one where it's it, it includes a lot of elements, but they're all done in a very sort of approachable and friendly way where anyone can play a game mm-hmm. and get through it and feel like oh yeah that that was fun and I learned something. It's really hard, um, and I, yeah, I encourage yeah, everyone to try to make that you know mm-hmm. try try to tackle that challenge. Yeah, I mean, something I've learned is your level is probably too hard. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, and that applies to all of you and all of your levels. It's <laughs> probably too hard, yeah. no matter what you think. Like, you have to play test stuff. Like, before you just because you made a level doesn't mean you have to upload it. You can you <laughs> call somebody else in the room, yeah. make a friend, have yeah. them play that game, and yeah. see how they do. And if they're and if they're really flailing and they can't play it. Uh, it might not be their fault. It might actually be your level. Like, you know, Jose, as you were saying, like you don't know what people are going to do. Yeah. Um, and also, you can't play your own level because by the time you're finished making this level, you've probably stopped and started and played a little and edited a level and stopped and started so many times that you now have the muscle memory to take you all the way to the end of that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just – you don't know how hard it is. You simply do not know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of great lessons to be learned there if you – uh, if your mind is open to absorb those lessons and if you have the capacity for like um, self-analysis yeah. uh, but if um, but if you if you, you you may not come away with anything if you're not ready to receive those lessons yeah no the lesson is that we are all terrible game designers <laughs> and it really does make you appreciate what a great job Nintendo did with the original Super Mario Brothers because they were kind of creating this from raw clay like what was a what was a 2d platformer in 1985 it was Mm -hmm. nothing Mm -hmm. it was pac-land you you don't want to do Mm pac-land but they they did it they took that that unformed material and turned it into a really genuinely great game it has its spots where you're like that's kind of cheap. Like anytime a Hammer Brother shows up, I get kind of annoyed. Yeah. Some of the underwater levels aren't that great. You know, some of the World 7 stages are just remixes of earlier stages from World 2 or 3. Okay, so it's not perfect, but it's it was an amazing piece of work. Yeah. Like, and they, they did that as inventors. They got it right without any yeah. anything to reference. Yeah. That's, that's the crazy thing yeah. about Super Mario Brothers for sure. The thing well, is, then what I think – oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Well, the thing is they did it twice. Like we just did a podcast about Mario 64. It's like they had to figure out how to make this a 3D game like mm-hmm. with these kind of controls. And it's like they did it right the first time. That's important. Sorry, Jose. Yeah, no. Well, and I think to add to that, I think maybe they've even done it again in terms of that. The biggest success of Mario Maker is that it makes – creativity in making something in a video game extremely accessible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that interface, that UI is something that at first you're just like, the the thought of building anything for a video game, and granted, we've played games for a very long uh, or significant portion of our lives, but it is not easy. Like we right. know, at least from the technical level, it's not easy. But when the tools are this simple, mm-hmm. all you have to worry about is the design. And I think that's what makes this project like mm-hmm. brilliant. Like mm-hmm. that's really a standout thing about it. 
and you know, important to remember, Mario Maker is not Photoshop. Like Super Mario Maker is a, it's a game. It's a it's a game, and it it too has been designed as a game by this team of people, but with through this process that created the original Super Mario Brothers to make us have fun while we're playing it yeah. and to it's teach it to the I gamification mean, of games. How would, is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How would you guys compare it to uh um, a WarioWare DIY. I was actually just about oh, to say, like, oh, if you compare this game that. to WarioWare DIY, you really see the difference in philosophy of design between, you know, Nintendo EAD and Miyamoto's team, mm-hmm. and what are they now? SPD one. Uh, it's one of those. SPD. It used to be R and D one. Yeah. Like our uh, WarioWare DIY. Sakamoto's team Sorry. is very complicated, and it's yes. very flexible and powerful, but. It's extremely hard to learn, and what you're creating is like two seconds, second blips of gameplay. Right. Yeah. Super Mario Maker is so intuitive mm-hmm. and so usable, and you, and you are making vast, level. expansive yeah. levels. Like you know that mm-hmm. that dude who made the Mario or the Metroid stage. Of course, like I mean one of the big problems with um, uh, WarioWare DIY is that sharing levels was. A pain uh, in the ass. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, it's impossible like, now. Two, right. two friend yeah. codes and like you had to turn the keys at the same well, time. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> sharing levels in Mario Maker is still no, share- friend code based well, to it a is, degree. Well, it's ID based. No, yeah, but it's ID based, but it's so much but easier. You can upload uh, it to a server, yeah. and that means that with WarioWare DIY, you could not just like log on to the WarioWare DIY server and see what new games were out there for you no. to play. Sure, but yeah, I you still give someone, feel like. You give someone your code, they star like any code. They star your your name, and then they see all your levels anytime. They sure, want. no, right. the process of discovery for levels, I feel absolutely tenfold better than what Wario or DIY was trying to do. It wasn't but even I discovery; like, it was impossible. You, there yeah, was you no couldn't. You couldn't, online, but, uh, you know. But I will say that, that like, there's like, there's still shortcomings though to Mario Maker that surprised me. Like yeah. just the idea that like I have a friends list with people on it and none of them are tagged as creators that I'm following like immediately. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that there's is like, kind of There's no way to filter too. that well, stuff. Nintendo. And I'm just like, why did you guys overlook something? And that's small. Because yeah. I want, because I'm like, I'm we friends, Jeremy, with you. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we're we we're, we're we we you friends. We buds. buddies. And it's like, shouldn't all of his levels just be popping up in a list for me somewhere? Like, shouldn't levels that your friends make yeah. be yeah. auto-populated? It's like, weird that that exists independently outside of, like, another list in a game, you know? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. never integrated in the right way. Yeah, but no, what I did appreciate, though, about WarioWare DIY is that its, it's level of ambition was a bit bigger in that, okay, yes, they are games designed around a one-touch idea uh, for the most yeah. part. But – you got the experience of making the graphics for that thing, of making the sound for that thing, of programming some of the logic for that thing. And the game was smart enough to have tutorial sections that basically turned sections of game design into job posts. It was like, hey, I need graphics for this thing. Can you draw me this? And that was a smart way to gamify the idea Mm -hmm. of my biggest thing in Mario Maker that I keep hitting a wall on is sometimes I just don't have an idea. (laughs) I don't I don't have that big idea and the game gave me gives me one in Mario. Almost all of my ideas for levels have come out of just opening up a level and just start placing elements yes. and seeing how they interact. Mm, yep. And then I will get like I have I, one of my levels um, was uh, was based around those skull platforms and uh, spikes, the insta death Mega Man spike type mm, things, which mm. are kind of weird in a Mario game, but there they are. Yeah. Um, and what I did was I had you actually run um, from the right to the left, and when you jumped on one of those platforms, it would send you backwards really quickly. Um, into spikes. And so the idea was you had to jump on the platform then jump off it really fast to get mm. to get through. And so I sort of taught you, you know, with 
a safer place and then a really hard place to die and then an easier place to die. But like that just came about because I was just throwing things around and um, like that's that is kind of how I get all my level ideas yeah. now. If I don't have an idea, if I just place some elements and mess around with them, I will get an idea. Yeah, and to your point earlier, it is not Photoshop and it is very much a game. And yeah. even little things like the sounds that are programmed for it to make the minute you put a tile down, yeah. the way it sort of says what it is and mixes in, that in into pitch, the – In the pitch of the song that's playing in the background. Yeah. Can yeah. you guys explain how it's a game? Oh, like God, I need so to crazy. know yeah. this. Like I'm sure listeners who might not have played it don't understand. Like, how is it also a, in the framework of a game? Well, when you, for, when you first started up, um, it kind of has you like play a little bit of a level and then it's like, oh, Mario can't get over this pit. So why don't you help him? And it kind of shows see, you how to do okay. that. Yeah. And then it's just kind of like, OK, well, these are the things you have. Why don't you try making a level? And then you do, you know, you make a level and then it sort of it rolls out new um, yeah. by the day. It rolls out new uh, components for you to make levels. And it's like, it. you, oh, do you want to try playing a sample level? Hey, why don't you try yeah. this 10 Mario okay. challenge over here? So it, it like keeps you engaged. And yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure what the goals were. No, and know? the game part of it is very much just the experience of making things. It's kind of like saying that Minecraft, you know, is a video game. The process of discovery is the game and that's something that I find myself constantly going back yeah. to. It's the reason I and keep also, making And stages. also, I mean, one of the huge things is, and this is really one of Mario Maker's big wins, it is... Um, Making it so, so, so easy to jump between uh, editing and playing. That's awesome, yeah. um, Which is the key. If it wasn't that easy, then this would not be nearly as fun. But you can just like edit, 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 put a brick down, press play, and then just start playing the level. Oh, that feels good, bad, and indifferent, and go back and tweak it again. Um, That is so much fun. It's so much fun to just draw a little bit and then play it in a way that, I mean, very few other game editors, if any, you know, that I've ever tried. No other game editors. Yeah. It's just not – it yeah. doesn't work like it's, that. It's the best sales pitch I've ever seen for the Wii U gamepad. Yeah. For 100%. sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. Absolutely. Yep. Like, yeah, I mean you could do this on a tablet, but then you wouldn't have the controls there. Like yeah. you wouldn't have the buttons. And that's, that's part it's of so it. It's easy like to switch it's back the real forth. Mario experience, but also there's that screen right there. Yeah. Like uh, I wish that other – any other game on Wii U made such great use of the Wii U yeah. game tablet. Our gamepad. Mm. Uh, give me that Zelda maker. Um, no, but seriously. Um, <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah, oh, I, abs- I want that I mean, now, so bad. First of all, I mean, I think they could do Super Mario Maker. I think they need to license it for with... Castlevania Maker, Mega Man mm. Maker. Uh huh. Yep. 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 But yeah. but but Zelda Maker is, I think, just Zelda 100% Dungeons. One hundred percent. Let me just good make follow up here. Dungeons for Zelda. Yep. That is what I will because do. Because those are a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. But now that they've kind of got the basics down. When I interviewed Tezuka last year at E3, he said there would be other games in the Super Maker. Mario Maker. So clearly, that's a, a feature they cut, that's or cool. else just condensed it down to the amiibo stuff. Yeah, yeah. He was like, it'll that, always be a platform, but you can, you know, have graphics from other games in there. But yeah, that didn't really happen aside mm-hmm. from the amiibo. Well, costumes. this E3, he was singing a different tune because someone just, <laughs> uh, I think, Game Informer yeah. asked him, like, "Hey, so would you do Zelda Maker?" Even like, even no, making too hard. Like, mm. what what we have learned from Super Mario Maker is that game development design is iterative and yeah. clearly like we've seen that with what they've said about Super Mario Maker like yeah. it's changed i mean the best level i've made so far started out as one thing and i actually took out every single element that i had originally envisioned for that level and it ended up being something completely different but it was fun yeah. and interesting so you know like it sometimes you just have to say oh 
like like Miyamoto, that well, that wasn't a good idea. Let's uh, let's try yeah. you know try it from scratch and start over. Well, the other piece to this story with Super Mario Maker that I'm dying to find out more about is the person who is the director on this game because I believe it is one of the younger or newer faces mm. at Nintendo, just like mm. the two Splatoon guys were, just like on 3D World, the co-director at the time was 28, uh, Kenta Motokura. Right. Like there is the younger, you know, that transition is coming, and if this is another one of those projects that you're going to look at 10 years from now and go, yep, that's part of that changeover, that group of, of younger designers who were sort of leading and paving the way at Nintendo. That's going to be a cool story if that's the story. I don't know for sure. I haven't talked to him yet. But uh, they keep offering Tezuka every time we want to talk about <laughs> right, uh, that course. game. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it, it's really eye-opening, I think, for all of us, just this experience of making things in a Mario game. And we've played so many. Um, I... I really am enjoying how much I've learned from this, I, I have to say. And it sounds like all of you are too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, I was surprised because, I mean, again, like when Sony had Little Big Planet and it was like, you can make your own game. I'm like, this sounds great. And then I start doing it and I'm like, this oh, is super boring yeah, and hard. Little Big Planet, Planet has terrible physics. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not even just that. It's just, you know, it's just laborious in a way that I didn't want to mm-hmm. deal with. WarioWare DIY, I, I was fine dealing with that. But – Mario Maker, um, you know, the fact that you do upload your games to servers that have lists of games and things like that, like that adds another exciting element to it of I want to go home and I want to open up my uh, gamepad immediately and see who's played my levels and did I get any comments mm-hmm. and did I get any stars and how is all that going and yeah. How come my good levels don't get stars and my crappy ones do? Pretty much. Hmm. So weird. It's anyway. just like writing, I think. Yeah. You know, actually, your stuff does better was, than you. Uh, I think it was Ben Kuchera at Polygon who wrote, like, yeah, Super Mario Maker is really teaching people about what it's like to be an indie game developer mm. because you look at the Apple App Store and it's all these, like, you know, crappy knockoffs of games um, that are bad, but they have an idea that you can latch onto. It's like, oh, it's like, you know, it's like Balloon Fighter, it's like this or it's like that. Um, our, it's like StarCraft, and, and but with Kate Upton's breasts. And if you look <laughs> at what is going on with the Mario Maker leaderboards with the review copies that were all, you know, the review servers essentially now, it's like the things that are getting the most stars are like, I recreated Minecraft in level 1-1 one, one something, you know, if it has this, uh, this, this easily latch on to a bull high con concept idea um but if somebody makes a good level but doesn't know how to market it they're just they're just never going to get any traction yeah and i'm worried about that too with mario maker just like how i'm going to discover some so, things because right now it's not uh, an easy pull to wade through sometimes so the lesson here is work on your seo Mm-hmm. Apparently, apparently, but it's impossible in Mario Maker. <laughs> you work on SEO. Uh, well, mean, you your, know, your title, level title. I have seen people who very clearly they figured out where the game takes a screenshot of your level, mm. and then they make sure to put something really interesting in that screenshot. What? Really? Yeah. Yep. Holy cow! Yep. So that's going to be big. Uh, figuring out how to title your levels. I mean, what do you control? You control the title. You control what the map looks like, and you control the screenshot. Mm. And so people are going to really tweak yep. those things. Yep. Sure. And don't hide messages Beat Bowser with these tin wheels. Don't write messages because you. you can't hide them. Yeah. <laughs> Moms hate Bowser. Um, <laughs> One weird trick. Yep. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, we need to wrap it up. Final thoughts on Super Mario Brothers, mm-hmm. what we were originally talking about. It's real good and it's a, it's a real good game and it's important. I'm just trying I to think it as I think I mean <laughs> again you. like it's been in it's been in circulation for so long you know as I said you know in so many different versions and people are still you know 
discovering Super Mario Brothers, the original, for the first time in a way that, like, um, you know, a kid who's, like, five years old, I would give him Super Mario Brothers and be like, here, try this out. And he'd probably actually like it. Mm. Um, but probably wonder why you can't um, take the bricks down and put other bricks in different mm. places wherever you want. <laughs> but you have to Super use your Mario hands. Maker. It's a baby's toy. <laughs> um, but it is, I think, Super Mario Brothers has probably been, like, the most um, – probably like the most assailed game design in all the history of games because whenever you have a sacred cow, somebody tries to knock it down and say, well, it was never that good to begin with. And so Super Mario Brothers has probably suffered the most slings and arrows at this point and has held up. Yeah, I feel like anytime I read uh, someone's dissertation that Super Mario Brothers is not that good, it's like Mm -hmm. a sign for me not to take that person seriously. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it has some flaws, but it was such a landmark and is still a fun and interesting and sometimes surprising game to play. Yeah, I guess uh, – uh, it's, 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 it's unimpeachable. Yeah, I think to Chris's point, maybe the fact that it's been in circulation for so long, if, had, if it had gone missing for a while, maybe then I, I almost feel like there would be a bit more mm-hmm. genuine appreciation for just how smart that game is. But, you know, hopefully after listening to, I don't know, almost an hour of this, right, over an hour of this, uh, it's clear in your mind there's no question like this thing – absolutely turned and changed everything that yeah. uh, at the time was being done yeah. in video yeah. games. And there's so many ways to play Super Mario Brothers. You can start at 1-1 and go all the way to 8-4. You can warp. You can, you know, take the, the Fire Flower and, and blast your way through stages and defeat Bowser that way. Or you can jump over him and hit the axe or whatever. And, you know, whenever I'm in, in Tokyo, I love just watching our friend you mentioned earlier, Kyle, uh, just like – speed run the game. Oh, he, He's got yeah. it down to like eight minutes or something. He's a monster <laughs> yeah. at that it's, game, It's crazy. Yes. But yeah, just watching that someone can do that uh, as opposed to playing it the long way, like he knows all the ins and outs, it just has that flexibility that, that a really great game does. Yeah. I mean, you can make a good game that there's only one way to play, sure, but mm-hmm. that's not what Super Mario Brothers was about. It, it really was kind of like this, this grand adventure and a, a playground at the same time and it, it just succeeded in in, in, that, in pretty much every respect, and it really changed the course of video game design and, and video game history, really. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, years from now, people will still be, even if video games went away, I think Mario will be a game that will be talked about. Bob? Yeah, I wouldn't be here. I'd be something stupid like a doctor, you know? So <laughs> thank you, Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> just think you could be cutting a polyp right now. Who oh, wow. Gross. Yuck. All right. So anyway, thanks everyone for listening. I hope you also agree that Super Mario Brothers is great. Um, If not, we don't want to hear about it. Uh, This has been another episode of Retronauts. As always, you can find us at retronauts.com on iTunes and at usgamer.net. Why doesn't everyone take a turn around the table and tell us where to find yourselves? Chris. Um, go to wired.com and then look for articles about video games and maybe I wrote uh, one of those and uh, if I didn't, I probably edited one of those. Um, I am uh, Kobun Heat on Twitter. That's Kobun as in a surf bot, K-O-B-U-N and then Heat as in warmth, uh, all one word. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Power Up, uh, How Japanese Video Games Gave the World an Extra Life, a 2004 book um, that I wrote back in 2004, uh, is going to be back in print in the spring of 2016. Um, so you can check that out. And uh, also, uh, Jeremy is pointing to my shirt, which says, Good Job Brain. And that is the name of a offbeat uh, quiz show and trivia podcast uh, that I am on with um, one-time retronauter Karen Chu, uh, as well as our friends. And that has uh, not a whole lot to do with video games but it has but something but really not a whole lot 
Jose? Hey, uh, you can find me on IGN.com, um, either, you know, written stuff or even video stuff. We have a really cool Super Mario uh, Maker IGN Challenge video series you should check out. Uh, a lot of trolling, sadly, but if you're willing to stomach some of it, uh, you'll have a good time. Um, I also run a podcast there about Nintendo called Nintendo Voice Chat. Uh, it's I didn't make up that name. It was the name of the show, and we kept it. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter, Jose underscore Otero, O-T-E-R-O. Nintendo Voice Chat is still uh, like a nice a little funny needle name. at Nintendo. Yeah. Even yeah. now, <laughs> even like 10 years after it was already a little yeah. funny dig at Nintendo because yeah. they still don't have Voice Chat. No, yeah. My, uh, if we were to change the title and still have a dig, I think the new one would be Nintendo Friendsless because the Friendsless <laughs> on a Nintendo platform is semi-useless. Uh, I, like I hate to say that. Yeah, it's, oh, not, hey. it's not a good name. Oh, sorry. Hey, I'm Bob, and you can find me on Twitter as Bob Servo. I also write for US Gamer and Something Awful. I have another podcast called Talking Simpsons, a chronological exploration of the Simpsons in order. And season two should be available to the public. Season one's behind a paywall. Go to lasertimepodcast.com to find it, or it's on iTunes Music Store, or wherever you get podcasts. And finally, you can find me at usgamer.net on Twitter as GameSpite, on YouTube as ToastyFrog. You can check out my crazy video game chronicle of Game Boy software, GameBoyWorld.com. And germane to this topic, uh, this podcast topic, uh, check out AnatomyOfGames.com where I wrote about Super Mario Brothers design. Um, probably not in as exhaustive of detail as it deserves, but I tried to actually analyze the way the design flows throughout the entire game, not just 1-1, and how concepts reappear and reemerge and, and you know evolve their different permutations, uh, something that I really haven't seen a lot of. Like, no one ever writes about World 5-3, but I did. Um, so check that out. And, of course, Retronauts is supported through Patreon.com, so please consider giving a dollar a month. We're not as, as noble a purpose as feeding an orphan, but it's still a pretty good cause, so please help us record our podcast because we like making it, and I think you like listening to it. Anyway, we'll be back again next week with a tiny episode, and the week after that with a big one. Thanks for listening. 